And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. On the website today, we have a um, new article out talking about the recent financial stability report. So the Federal Reserve publishes a report called the Financial Stability Report. And in this, they go through all of the potential kind of financial risks for the markets and and what those might actually be. And it was interesting because, of course, you know, you know, banks and and the other stuff that they have that they keep a watch on, there's always certain risk in those. And I thought it was interesting because they made a specific note in the most recent Financial Stability Report stating They said, and this was a a warning, that the market might be vulnerable to significant declines. Here's the quote from the Financial Stability Report. Prices of risky assets generally increase since the previous report, and in some markets, prices are high compared with expected cash flows. House prices have increased rapidly since May, continuing to outstrip increases in rent. Nevertheless, despite rising housing valuations, little evidence exists of deteriorating credit standards or highly leveraged investment activity in the housing market. Hmm. That might be a little bit stretched. I mean, uh, Zillow is a good example of speculative activity in the housing market. Nonetheless, they continue in the part that I wrote the article about this morning. Asset prices remain vulnerable to significant declines should investor risk sentiment deteriorate, progress on containing the virus disappoint, or the economic recovery stall. Now, this is interesting because the one thing driving investor sentiment has been the Fed liquidity program, which now they are in the process of reversing. They're starting to taper that. Risk sentiment was driven by the Pavlovian response of quantitative easing in the markets, right? Don't fight the Fed. Fed does QE, you buy stocks. There's no risk as long as the Fed is doing QE. Now the Fed is beginning to reverse that QE process. The next question will be how long can they sit on the sidelines and not raise interest rates, giving the recent run in inflation and how long it may or may not last. So in this point, as we begin to look ahead, they're noting that a significant decline could occur if investor risk sentiment deteriorates. Or the economic recovery stalls. What happens when you raise interest rates? That slows economic growth. That's exactly why you raise interest rates. Uh, Theoretically, you have inflation because the economy is overheating. The problem is now is we have inflation due to supply chain disruptions and economic growth is actually fairly weak. So if you've already got weak economic growth and you begin to hike interest rates, you're going to have a problem economically on the recovery. But let's go back to valuations for a second. They note that the prices of risky assets generally increased since the previous report in some markets. Prices are high compared to expected cash flows. Price to sales. Currently, for the market, is at the highest level on record. Market cap to GDP, two and a half times market cap. Since revenue and, and 
is generated by what happens in the economy, what you and I buy and spend. Stock prices are two and a half times what the economy can actually generate. How is that sustainable? Take a look at household equity assets. They're up to $30 trillion. 90% of that is owned by the top 20% of income earners. Yeah, there's there's no real you know, speculative activity in the markets <laughs> to speak of. But this has all been driven by 12 years of monetary policy. This continued drive of liquidity to support asset prices and markets relative to the economy has now created a bubble of mass proportions. Now, does that mean that it's all going to blow up tomorrow and, and, and fall apart? No, of course it doesn't. But the things that you'll be paying attention to, as we've talked about here before on the show, is that it's the Fed stopping QE, the Fed hiking rates, and an inverted yield curve. What do you have going on right now? Well, the Fed's starting to taper. Your, in curve, your yield curve is beginning to flatten fairly quickly. And the only thing you're missing is the Fed hiking rates. And historically speaking, it's not all three that trigger a recession. It's one of the three. Last time that we had the yield curve flattening, the Fed hiking rates, and tapering the balance sheet was in September of 2018 and right before that 20% decline in the market. So historically speaking, when you have inflation, rising interest rates, those aren't good for stock prices. And the point about this is, is that, you know, while the Fed's financial stability report is simply saying, well, you know, asset prices could be a problem, maybe, if the economic recovery stalls, if investor risk sentiment changes, that's the market. The economy will stall. That's a function of a cycle. Economic growth strengthens, then it peaks, and then it, it declines. So, you know, that's just the way the economy works. So it's eventually going to stall. Now, is it going to stall next week, next month, next quarter, next year, year after next? Who knows? But eventually economic growth is going to slow. The more the higher interest rates go and the more that inflation impacts spending, the faster the economy will slow. So that's going to happen. Investor risk sentiment is going to change. That's a function of markets. So what's interesting is by the Fed statement is like, well, we can keep doing what we're doing as long as nobody else pushes the big red button. And this is the problem with stability. Financial stability leads to instability. It's a function of market cycles. It's a function of how things work. And instead of, and this is the interesting prospect for the Fed, and again, if I was president, I would fire every one of them and probably just shut down the Fed entirely at this point. So I don't know if they're really doing anybody any favors. Ever since 1980, every financial boom and bust has been directly related to Fed activity. So maybe we should just stop that, right? But... If you know asset valuations are extended and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that market cycle, then why are you continuing to support elevations assuming that everything will remain status quo? In other words, 
nobody's going to push the big red button. We're all going to just stay very exuberant investors. That's never going to change. It's like saying, look, you know, you can drive down the freeway blindfolded as long as there's no other cars in the freeway and there's no turns, right? <laughs> well, eventually something's going to happen and you're going to wreck. And it's the same thing as this. The Fed knows, and they should know, that eventually risk sentiment changes. So instead of preparing for that in advance and beginning to, to start to put policy into place to help slowly revert valuations, no, we're just going to keep th doing things the way we are until it all blows up in our face, and then we'll figure it out then. Sounds like a plan. That article's on the website right now. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. Uh, if you joined our uh, live event, our Candy Coffee this weekend, I joined Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff to talk about markets and outcomes. We'll have that posted to the website here soon for the replay. And if you joined it, we'll be sending you a link to it as well so you can replay it if you're leisure. Uh, that'll be coming out in the next uh, day or so from Brent. If you have any questions in the meantime, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails. Uh, keep watching our event calendar. We've got a whole slate of events coming up for next year for you, both educational and informative. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. December 9th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. You know, this whole uh, climate change shift that we're trying to do in the economy certainly has uh, had some interesting side effects as well as some interesting outcomes of this. And, of course, uh, one of those is uh, a couple of years ago, this company called Beyond Meat came out, right? And this was the fall meat company, right? So everybody's going to start. We're all going to go vegetarian now. We're going to eat fake meat because, well, you know, cows pass gas and that's that pollutes the atmosphere and, you know, all those type of good reasons. And, you know, it's interesting Beyond Meat just reported earnings stock is down sharply because guess what? Demand is waning. No kidding. I, you know, there's very few people. And look, I, I spent a good portion of my life being vegetarian um, for when I was competing internationally to keep my, my body weight at a certain weight. And, you know, it's 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 interesting, right? It's it's a very challenging dietary requirement to be a vegetarian. You've got to really be committed to it. And look, considering the number of people that actually go to the gym and work out and considering the obesity level in this country, um, <laughs> you know, uh, discipline is the one thing that Americans tend to lack a good bit of. And so it wasn't surprising this fad. And we talked about it at the time when Beyond Meat come out and go, look, this is a fad. It's going to go away. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, demand for the product is falling fairly sharply as people go, mm, I think I'll go back to eating meat. Um, but this is also having, and it's not, that's just kind of one of those, you know, early kind of adoptions. And we talk about this whole idea of climate change. People are willing up front to say, 
oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive this or I'm gonna do this because of you know climate change and we need to be more climate friendly. And this is part of what we talked about with ESG investing as well. But it only lasts until the point that it becomes inconvenient or costly. And then people start going back in the other direction because people want convenience and they want lower cost. And, you know, this is why inflationary, you know, problems in the economy are, are problematic because, you know, the higher the rate of inflation goes, the less money I have to spend on other things. I talked about last week in terms of CPI as an example that if you take a look at CPI, you know, it's up, you know, 6% on the core basis. So, you know, if you strip out food, I'm sorry, on the on the headline basis, on the core basis, it's not quite as high once you strip out food and energy. But for most people, food and energy are things that they consume on a regular basis, right? You go to the grocery store once a week or once every other week and you go to the, you go to the gas station, you know, once a week, whatever. And, uh, you know, Richard was talking about, Richard and uh, John were talking about on Friday that, uh, you know, John's daughter was complaining about the, you know, what it costs to fill up a car, right? And I've told you before, my kids are required to pay for their own gas insurance. They have to pay for their own car note. And, you know, the cost of gas is eating them up because they drive everywhere. You know, they're constantly going out, running around, seeing their friends, doing this, doing that, the other thing. And, you know, they're burning through a couple of tanks of gas a week. And, you know, they've noticed the cost of uh, higher gas prices. So again, once inflation becomes crimping in terms of changing lifestyles, then things change. Same thing with uh, you know this whole climate change thing. It was interesting because the USDA is about to increase pig slaughtering at processors to try to tame meatflation. More supply. Try to bring down the cost by providing more pork. If you have you been to the store to try to buy bacon lately, you'll know the problem with pork. Right. And this and this and it's an issue. Right. This is. But now the Fed doesn't count the cost of bacon, but the cost of bacon is surging if you can even get it. Right. In some cases, you can't even get bacon. The big the big green push to get rid of coal has had an opposite effect. We kind of experienced a little bit of this uh, last February or February four last when we had the deep freeze. And or that was that was this past February. That's right. Time flies. Time flies. But we had the deep freeze in Texas. You know, we had the problem with the power outage, and you know, and part of this was due to, you know, the grid. But part of it was also due to trying to shift to you know wind and and solar energy as well, and and the lack of production. Right, we just didn't have enough supply of energy. California has this problem going on all the time. They have, they have these rolling brownouts because. For years, they've been suppressing the building of nuclear power plants or energy, uh, you know, other types of energy production plants in favor of wind and solar, and that's fine, except it's not very efficient. And so the problem is you have a lot of demand for energy and you have an inefficient supply of, of energy, you have problems. And that's not going to fix itself anytime soon. And so this whole idea that we're going to get rid of coal and Germany's learned this firsthand, by the way. Germany did the same thing, cut back on their coal production. Now they're having energy problems as well. And now this whole demand to get rid of coal is actually driving the exact opposite because, you know, it's one thing to be green. It's another thing to have your lights on. <laughs> 
And people are only green up to the point that they want to have lights. And what we also forget is, is that if you want to charge your electric vehicle, you need energy and electricity. And those things come at a cost. And the more efficient the provider of energy, the cheaper the cost are. The less efficient they are, the higher the cost is. And so this is all the underlying problem. An interesting article out. An alleged big wind for, to eliminate coal has turned into a bust and then some. And this was a Bloomberg article um, on how environmentalists pushing mining giants to quit coal has backfired. Here's a quote. It was supposed to be a big win for climate activists. Another of the world's most powerful mining companies had caved to investor demand that it stop digging up coal. Instead, Anglo-Americans PLC exit from coal has become a case study for unintended consequences. Hmm. Seems like we've talked about that on the show here before. Uh, transforming mines that were scheduled for eventual closure into an engine room for the growth-hungry coal business. And while its particularly stark example is not the only one, rival BHP Group was struggling to sell an Australian colliery uh, this year. The company surprised investors by applying to extend mining at the site by another two decades. An apparent attempt to sweeten its appeal to potential buyers. Now, this is a problem. First of all, when it comes to the client, you know, we just had this debacle at the COP26, global elitist climate change. They all fly there in their private jets and limos and things and put a bigger carbon footprint in small cities. But, you know, they're there to fight climate change. And the problem is, of course, is that they left there. And, and again, we've got to get down. We've got to, we've got to reduce contamination of CO2 in the world. And so the U.S., Got to do that, right? Because we're big, we're a big polluter. Actually, not. If you take a look at U.S. CO2 emissions, we've actually been declining for about the last two decades, and are one of the lowest producing countries of major industrialized countries. Um, we're one of the lowest producers of CO2 emissions. Um, however, China is one of the largest and still growing, along with India and others. So again, you know, when you take a look at what we're doing, and it's all fine. Look, again, as I've said here before on the show, I'm all for, you know, saving the climate. Nothing wrong with that. If you want efficient, clean energy, it's nuclear. And we need to start investing in nuclear plants, right? You want to spend $1.2 trillion? Build some nuclear plants. That is actually something where you could spend debt that would pay for itself. Because you spend the $1.2 trillion, you build two, three, four nuclear plants with it. I'm not sure how much a nuclear plant costs, but I'm assuming it's not a trillion dollars. Um, <laughs> but you build a nuclear plant, then it provides energy. People pay for that energy. They pay taxes. That pays for the debt. And after the debt is paid off, you have a profitable project, much like we did with the Hoover Dam back during the Depression. Those are things that actually work. And you supply a very clean form of energy. All for that. No problem with it. The problem is, is that we're trying to impact one side of the business. Let's get rid of that dirty coal. Let's get rid of the petroleum producers in exchange for clean energy. But then again, we forget about all the things outside. See, we, you know, it's a very myopic view of the climate changes on energy because they go, oh, we need to get ExxonMobil evil company, right? They're polluting the planet. Uh, the problem is, is that there's more to their products than just gasoline. 
we've talked about this on the show before, of course, if, you know, go take a look at what's in a Tesla, you know, 95% of it, maybe more, is all petroleum products. And then the part that's not petroleum-based, re required petroleum of some form to get the other products there, shipping, transportation, manufacturing processes, etc., and when you get down into the mining part of the lithium and the cobalt and the copper and all this, massively energy intensive supplied by coal. So the, the problem with all this, again, as we kind of talk about where we're headed, is that we've got to start making smarter decisions on not just how we spend money, because all the tax revenue that's coming in is being spent. More than 100 cents of every dollar of tax revenue is now going to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the debt. The rest of it all comes out of debt. And that's the irony of the Congressional Budget Office. They're expected to score the Build Back Better plan as fully paid for. That was all just a method of suppressing interest rates, suppressing payouts, mathematical fuzzy math reality none of it's paid for it's all debt because all the revenue went to pay for social benefits everything else you spend is all from debt it's got to be paid back again <laughs> got to be careful the choices you make be right back after the break daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. December 9th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Is the 60-40 portfolio allocation dead? Uh, this has been one of the, the big discussion points that has really been in the markets over the last several years. Um, beginning in 2013, Jeff Gunlack, Bill Gross... Others, you know, famous the, the famous bond gurus were proclaiming that the bond bull market of the last 40 years was over and interest rates had nowhere to go but up. And ever since then, rates have done nothing but go lower. And of course, as interest rates fall, the prices of bonds rise, which has made the 60-40 allocation model actually continue to work very well for more conservative investors. Um, the 60-40 allocation model, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, has lower volatility than the S&P 500 index as, as a whole. And until just last, really just two years ago, about 2019, the 60-40 allocation model from 2000 to 2019 actually outperformed the S&P 500 index. And that was because of the two big bear markets and equities that occurred from 2001 and 2002 and 2008 
That really impeded returns for equity investors. They didn't get back to even until 2013. The 60-40 allocation model was well positive in making money for investors with much lower volatility long before the S&P 500 index got back to even. So, you know, is there a point here where now, well, because interest rates are low, the theory is, is that rates have nowhere to go but up. The problem with that is that higher interest rates are a problem when you have an economy driven solely on debt, whether it's corporate debt, individual debt, mortgage debt, government debt. Everything that we're doing is specifically going right back into debt to pay for whatever we want to pay for. Of course, that's all been a function and a driver of near zero interest rates now for the last decade from the Federal Reserve and, and continually falling interest rates, not just over the last decade, mind you. Interest rates have been falling since 1980, which has been fueling both speculative investment in markets as well as rising asset prices in, in multiple areas. So, you know, <clears throat> yes, interest rates can't go much lower than zero, but does that actually mean the 60-40 allocation is dead? Now, before I, I, I ask Danny Ratliff a question, I want to read to you a little quote here from a Barron's article. And talking and, and this article basically says the 60-40 allocation model is dead. It's done. And here is the resolution by people, advisors in the marketplace, what they're recommending for their clients. And particularly, we're talking about now clients that are near retirement or in retirement with a substantial amount of well saved up. What's the recommendation to combat the 60-40 allocation model if bonds are indeed dead? With longer and longer life expectancies, the retiree depends on their portfolio to meet their living need for decades. Therefore, for most clients, the assets that would typically be invested into bonds should be invested into equities. So in other words, as a retiree heading into retirement, you should no longer have fixed income as part of your portfolio. Your portfolio should be 100% equities. And this has become commonplace accepted analysis and recommendations for the markets. And this, the problem with this, of course, is this analysis and recommendation has come from a 11-year bull market run where there's been no serious major declines to this point that have impacted capital. Ask somebody that was actually in the market in 2008, and they might disagree. Danny, let's uh, go to you. You work with a lot of individual advisors. You're a certified financial planner, and, and you work with many, many high net worth clients. I just want to ask you a question right, right up front here, Danny. If you went to a, to one of your clients right now and said, "Hey, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, um, you know, we don't think bonds can go much lower here, so we're going to put all your money into equities," um, would you still have any clients? You know, I think that'd be a really hard sell. But but Lance, there are a lot of people out there that are doing just that, and they're making the argument saying, "Hey, you know what? You have a long time before you need to make distributions. Go ahead, you can put these funds aside. We can be extremely aggressive because there is no there is no other place and no other alternative at the moment." And we know that's not true. The other issue is, like you mentioned, 11 years, 12, 13, whatever the number is, yeah. as far as this bull market has ran, what's likely to happen is the market gets more and more expensive. As we are in a potentially tightening cycle, that typically doesn't bode well for equities. And so now you have somebody getting closer to retirement. Yes, they don't need these funds right now, but what if you saw a major drop? would maybe they start to have to rely on these funds down the road? Mm -hmm. There's potential for that. And I think that becomes the, the bigger problem here is that with this greater amount of risk that we're trying to kind of 
smooth over and say, look, guys, it's going to be okay. It seems like that's what the industry is doing. There, there becomes a significant problem for the, the well-being of your financial plan as far as how long it can actually, these funds can last you if you face a significant drop. And most people aren't taking that into an account. And, and that's really kind of a, a key point here is, you know, again, there's two things that happen to retirees. And, and again, you know, if you go back and talk to a person that was in the markets in 2008, as an example, and was close to retirement, say they, say they were just within 10 years of retirement, or let's go back to 1998, 1999 and talk to somebody that was, was within 10 years of retirement back then. Let's say you're 45 or 55 back in 1998, 1999, you know, it was 13 years before you just got your money back. If you weren't ready for retirement in 2000, in 2013, you still weren't ready for retirement. And that's 13 years of your lifespan that just kind of went away because of what happened with the, the market cycle. And, you know, as we talk about valuations, and, and that has a lot to do with forward returns, PE valuations at the peak of the market in 1999 were 44 times earnings, according to the Schiller Cape. As of yesterday, the Schiller Cape ratio is 40 times earnings. It is only, you know, basically four points less than it was in 1999. And yet we've got advisors saying, oh, well, the only thing you can do here is put all your money into the, the riskiest asset class of the market, which is equities, and kind of really just kind of cross your fingers and hope markets just keep going up indefinitely because we've now eliminated bear markets. And, th and this is the thought, at least, by individuals when it comes to the Fed. The Fed, the Federal Reserve will not allow the bear market to occur, so there is no downside risk to markets. Uh, we are in very uncharted territory in terms of valuations. Price to sales have never been at three times earnings. Market cap to GDP has never been at two and a half times the economy. Um, talk about valuations, 40 times earnings. That's the second highest level on record and very close to what we saw at the peak of the markets in 1999. No matter how you cut valuations, investors are paying a very high cost for that. But bonds relative to the economy are still actually very fairly valued. So as an investor, really, where would you put your money? Seems to me you're taking a lot of risk to try to ache out a very small rate of return differential going forward. Well, I think what, what advisors are looking at is if they can look like a rock star in the interim and say, okay, we can gather assets, we're doing very well, it's it's a good story, because people don't know what to do. They, they understand that we are in uncharted waters to some extent. But what I fear is that on the back end of this, they're going to look like MC Hammer broke and not have any money. And this is going to be the this is going to pose such a significant issue for retirees. And, you know, just like you mentioned, you have a, a totally different perspective when you think about the people that retired in 2000 and they faced 2001, two and three or 2008. And you saw that significant drawdown. We know the first two years in retirement are extremely crucial to the longevity of your, your funds. Um, the first 10 years are also really important. Once you get past those, if you have the wind at your back, you're doing pretty good. But it's a different story for people who took distributions during those times versus people who are able to take advantage of it, put funds aside, continue to contribute as the market dipped. Hey, that could have been a really good thing for a lot of younger investors because now you're buying it a lot cheaper and now you do have the wind at your back. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of one of the that's kind of one of the excuses for this as well, which is, well, even if the market does have a big correction, you know, it always gets back to even, right? It always comes back. And and that's true. But one of the things that retirees in particular 
you know, miss in that in that statement, which is as the market is declining, if you're taking money out, you're accelerating that decline. So if I'm taking out 10% of my, you know, assets a year to live on and the market declines by 10%, I'm not down 10. I'm actually not down 20. I'm actually down about 22 because of the effect of compounding of those withdrawal rates as the market's declining. So you know, you know, for a lot of uh, a lot of retirees, the one thing we always recommend is having some cash cushion set aside so that during a decline, you can stop withdrawal rates to to minimize that impact on accounts. But for for people that are 100 percent invested in equities, they may not have a choice. And and that devastation may actually be even far worse than what happens just in the market decline and something that a lot of uh, advisors don't you know tell people about. Well, that's right. And what about the advisors that are now pushing these more sophisticated products. You know, that's one of the things I'm seeing is, you know, even reading that article, um, other areas, it seems that this is the hot topic. But now we have people, and, and we've had to think outside the box as well. I think that it, it this environment, it, it needs a, a time to think outside the box. But you have to be very careful, and people need to understand what they're investing in, in the sense that we're seeing a lot of people throw around private equity, private real estate, things that a lot of people typically would not have looked at. Now they're saying, huh, okay, this is something that I could potentially do. And it is that more sophisticated. We talk about all these products that Wall Street you know, bundles together to sell, and this is one of them. And so that's another area that, that I think investors need to be cautious. They need to do their homework, make sure they're doing their due diligence to really understand what they're investing in, understand if there could be potential liquidity issues, what's the impact if the market does falter and the economy you know, goes in a, it looks a little bit different, because that's when those investments they're not nearly as fun because yeah. you can't get out and and you can't actually proactively manage that portfolio because more often than not, you're stuck in some of those. Yeah. So is 60-40 allocation model dead? No, the answer is it's not. And even if bonds go nowhere over a decade in terms of price, you're still better off than being 100% invested in equities during a bear market. And it's just simply a function of math. But most importantly, it's about risk tolerance and what you can actually afford to navigate and, and how to mitigate that risk. So again, make sure you get with your advisor, talk to them seriously about the impact on your retirement. If you have questions, go by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send me a question. Danny and I are happy to answer it for you. Be right back after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our Virtual Lunch and Learn on Long-Term Care, December 9th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So yesterday, of course, uh, here on the show, we were talking a little about, about Elon Musk for president. And yesterday when I did the interview on Fox Business, uh, they asked me about that and why, you know, that this idea of Elon Musk for president was interesting. It's, and again, we, we kind of talked a little bit about the issue that, you know, what 
investors think they want and what people think they want may not be what they really want. And this is kind of the real key issue that you know Elon Musk brought out yesterday, and we were talking about this yesterday on the show, is this idea of a capital gains tax, right? We need to tax the wealthy. And again, as I've talked about on the show before, you know, taxing the wealthy sounds great, but you have to understand that their money is very fungible and they can move their money anywhere they want or they can sell. So again, as we talked about a minute ago, you know, one of the things driving this market and driving a lot of the speculation in the market has been record stock buybacks, which have accounted for about 40% of the advance. Stock buybacks have made, you know, executives exceedingly wealthy. Right. Um, and, and of course, the exuberance in the markets. And, and again, when you take a look at record options volume. So when people buy options on stocks, that requires the underlying stocks to get bought. So it pushes up the prices of stocks because somebody has to issue out those contracts. There's always two parties to every side. And of course, as the speculation kind of runs rampant in the market, this is accelerating the price of stocks and guys like Elon Musk that own a lot of company stock in a company. And look, it's not just Elon Musk, it's, it's Jeff Bezos, it's Bill Gates, you know, it's Tim Cook. These guys make a lot of money with rising stock prices. And, and that's the whole purpose of stock buybacks is to make sure that prices of stocks remain elevated because the insiders who are granted stock, and this is the key issue here, they're gifted stock. They're granted stock as part of their compensation package. As long as prices stay up, then they can convert that stock into cash at some point down the road at a much higher price. If the stock price falls dramatically, their options either expire worthless or their, grant, or their granted stock goes down in price, right? It certainly doesn't help their net worth any. Um, as we talked about, though, you know, for a lot of these companies and a lot of these corporate executives, they can't go out and just sell their stock because if they do, what will happen is exactly what you're seeing going on with Tesla stock right now, which is, you know, ever since Elon Musk started talking about selling stock, the stock price has gone down, you know, 10, 11, 12 percent, whatever it's been. Now, can you imagine, and this is what we talked a little bit about yesterday, can you imagine what would happen if... Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and the kind of the Democrats get their wish and they want to impose a capital gains tax on unrealized capital gains because they want to go extract capital from all of these wealthy billionaires that have a lot of corporate stock. Okay, that's fine. You know, what's 20% of $180 billion? That's about the rough value of Elon Musk's holdings. So if you wanted to charge him with tax on $180 billion, 20% of that that you want today, he's got to go out and sell that stock in order to pay that tax. Now, can you imagine magnifying that across the entirety of the S&P 500? You want to talk about an event that causes a drop in the financial markets? That would be it. Because now all these corporate executives are going to have to sell stock in order to pay their taxes. Now, you know, this is one and this is always one of the interesting things about, you know, individuals when they get behind these causes, they don't really think about the unintended consequences of their actions. Yes, we need to go get these ultra wealthy people. They need to pay their fair share. Okay. They'll pay their fair share. Market's going to drop, you know, 20, 30% in value. All of a sudden, that extra money you had in the markets, that's gone. How do you feel about that tax rate now? 
They've still got their money. Yeah, you know, they sold their shares to pay their taxes. They've still got their money. You lost yours. That's okay. But again, we always have to think about these unintended consequences of our actions. And a lot of these kind of socialist ideas that are being floated around, as, as we've talked about before, look, giving people money is fine. Nothing wrong with it. Except for the fact that it's issued out of debt. You're going to have slower economic growth. That's going to lead to lower wages down the road. Yes, you're having a little spike in low-end wages right now because of labor shortages, but that'll resolve itself. And then wages will decline again as we get into a slower economic environment. And particularly if inflation pops up here too much and wages rise much more, you're going to start to have companies laying off employees because they've got to protect their profit margins. So these, these you know, ideas for more socialist you know, outcomes where we give people money for health care and for people money for, you know, uh, child care and all these type of things. It sounds great, except it leads to inflation. All these things will drive up the cost. And of course, we're using debt to fund these, which drives down long term economic growth. So now you've got higher costs for people trying to live on one end, but you've got slower economic growth on the other. And that doesn't work out well for the for the for the middle. And that's why socialist countries are never prosperous. And that's why what we're trying to do with these policies is drive the entire economic equality down to the lowest common denominator. How do you make things equal? Everybody's got to be equal, but everybody will be equal at the lowest common denominator. You can't raise the bottom, but you can bring the top down to the bottom. That's just the way it works. Because whether it's in education, and of course, you know, we go through a lot of this educational reform that we need to make everybody more compatible and equal in education, right? We don't, you know, we should get rid of AP classes that, you know, that, that are dominated by Asian kids and white kids, right? We don't, you know, the really smart kids, you know, we shouldn't have AP classes for them. Everybody needs to be equal. That's fine. We're going to have to dumb down everything to the lowest common denominator. That's just the way it works. The outcomes of that, it may sound great in the short term because now everybody's equal. The outcome long term is not good. Again, the things we should be striving for are not equality, but equality of opportunity, right? Everybody should have an equal opportunity to excel. Let's give everybody the tools and the opportunity to achieve those goals. And if they choose to participate, if they choose to excel, that's on them. And they have that opportunity to, to succeed. And that is what makes capitalism work and what creates wealth in an economy. Those are the things we have to remember. But a lot of these ideas, taxes and other things to fund spending that really has a negative multiplier impact on the economy do not have good long-term outcomes. You know, we always forget about one thing in all of these discussions, personal responsibility. We all want free things, but we don't want the personal responsibility that it goes along with us obtaining those things. And you know, when it comes to healthcare is a good example. A lot of people complain about our healthcare system. Hey, I get it, right? A lot of people are sick. Healthcare costs is high. Why is healthcare cost high? It's not government. Healthcare cost is high is because every time you get a sniffle, you want to run down to the doctor, get a prescription, and pay 25 bucks or $20 or whatever your copay is. Somebody's got to pick up that tab for all the other stuff that goes on. If you want lower healthcare costs, you've got to start taking personal responsibility for your health. Obesity is one of the number one killers in this country right now because we don't take care of ourselves. 
heart disease, diabetes, all these other killers of, of, of people in this country are all directly driven by poor diets, lack of exercise, and lack of health, right? But we don't take personal responsibility for our health care. If we were required, like auto insurance, to take care of our maintenance, and insurance would cover the more catastrophic outcomes, just like liability insurance does, all of a sudden health care costs would drop remarkably. So why is, why is liability insurance for your car so cheap? Why do you see these commercials every day with somebody offering the lowest possible cost on car insurance because you're responsible for the maintenance of the car? The insurance is only there when you wreck your car. Same thing for healthcare. If you want lower cost healthcare, better quality healthcare, start taking care of some of the responsibility yourself. Why do you think plastic surgery is some of the highest quality healthcare in the country and has some, some of the most reasonable competitive costs? because it's, it's elective surgery. Those costs come down over time, quality continues to go up because those doctors are all competing for the business. Bring competition back to healthcare and guess what you're gonna get? You'll get better quality healthcare, you'll get lower costs, and you'll get exactly what you want, but guess what, along the way, you've gotta have some personal responsibility in that as well. But this goes with not just healthcare, this goes with all areas of life, but see, that's too much trouble, that's too much work to take care of ourselves, I gotta go to the gym every day, I've gotta eat right. Man, I've been eating chicken and broccoli for three months, right? <laughs> I am so burned out on chicken and broccoli. Works great, the diet's awesome, right? Lost weight, cut body fat, it's an awesome diet, but man, I get tired of eating chicken and broccoli. So we don't wanna do that because it's hard. It's so much easier just to have people give us stuff. And it's fine. Again, like I said, if that's what you want, that's fine. Just don't complain about the outcomes. You can't have it both ways. If you want free stuff, that's fine. Don't complain about the outcome. I've lived in other countries with socialized healthcare. There's two healthcare systems. Nobody ever tells you about this. Everybody tells you about how cheap healthcare is in other countries. There's two healthcare systems in every other country. Those for the people that are on the public system, which is really not very good healthcare at all. And then there's a private healthcare system that rich people pay for because that's where you get good healthcare. And if you can't get good healthcare there, where do rich people go? They come to the United States because they come right here to Houston. If you got heart surgery, brain surgery, this is the only place you want to be in Houston to have your surgery done because they're the best doctors. That's the best healthcare in the world, period, bar none, end of story. No matter what people tell you about how terrible healthcare is in the US, it's completely bogus. I've been there, I've lived it, I've used it and ask anybody there. That's why they come to the US. Even people from Canada who, who talk about how great their healthcare is in Canada, when they get have, have, need to have brain surgery, where do they go? They have in Canada? Nope. Come to Houston, because this is where healthcare is. Think about what you want, and this is the whole point about where we want to get to long-term. We're heading down a very dangerous path economically, but it is what it is for now, and until we as voters decide to change it, it's not going to change. We'll see you next time on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Hopefully all of our equipment will be working next time. <laughs> and uh, be sure to get on our website. Um, our latest blog posts and up are up on the website, as well as our candy coffee from this past weekend. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.
Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next Virtual Lunch and Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our Virtual Lunch and Learn on long-term care. December 9th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com.